There is arguably no aspect of architecture in which science is more influential than in the realm of lighting, from fluorescent bulbs of the late 19th century to LEDs that only became truly viable in the last two decades. Advances in the science of creating light has been quickly followed by architectural experimentation. So that's a quote from Davina Jackson's book, Superlux, Smart Light, Art, Design and Architecture for Cities. So this podcast, in a way, takes its lead from that idea. We think that lighting has fundamentally changed architecture and cities. And so what we aim to explore in this podcast is how lighting and architecture and cities are intertwined. My name's Anthony DeMarze, I'm an architect, I'm a practicing architect, and beside me is Jackson Stigwood, who's a practicing lighting designer. So unlike a lot of other podcasts, which is interview-based, this podcast will be primarily done around research. But today's, uh, which is our first podcast, so we will try and give an introduction, an overview as to why we, what we're thinking in relation to this topic. And probably we'll be a bit green in the way that we present ourselves for the first one, where, where we are novices at podcasting, but nonetheless, we'll give it our best shot. Let's just start with the basics. We know that, you know, if we were to look at the history of architecture, depending on where you want to start it, there's about 2,000 years of architecture where we relied primarily on the sun. And that tradition has, you know, has been, has evolved over time. So it really doesn't matter which building you look at in that period. Every, every building has to have some relationship to the outside for its primary source of illumination. And we can look at many, many examples as to good examples, bad examples of how lighting evolved, how um, sorry, natural lighting was used in buildings and how it evolved over that period of time. Definitely. Which I think's given us sort of a sort of a foundational desire and also maybe genetic ability to uh, to respond to it. Um and it's just through the, the generations of having this relationship with architecture and light. And, you know, starting with the sun and then, you know, sort of con trying to control the sun within internal environments. And then we start to see the introduction of uh, lighting forms in terms of portable light sources through fire, through wax, through candles and things like this starting to be introduced. And that's when we start to see this relationship of light being brought within architecture itself as a form which really influenced how people culturally, how they came together with inside, within buildings and what they did external to these buildings. And it would have to be said that in those early, with those early sources of manipulated light, um, that it really was supplementary uh, to the primary source of light, which is daylight. And, you know, our relationship to buildings was really similar to our relationship to the planet. We, we relied on a day-night cycle. Um, our lifestyle evolved around that idea, you know, and buildings responded to the conditions of light in order to make them functional during the day. 
Now that seems, you know, pretty obvious, but there are some pretty big implications to that. One is the size of a room, the window, the orientation, the colour of the interior, the form of the interior are all directly related to its relationship to the outside. I think it's really important to just touch on some of those uh, masterpieces, shall we call them, of, of daylight. Places like the Parthenon, the Pantheon, um, you know, Notre Dame Cathedral, uh, you know, Hagia Sophia, these, these sort of monumental buildings that really use daylight or sunlight to create a transformative effect and, I guess, connect um, people to some kind of other place. And you could argue, I think, that architecture's relationship to daylight and sunlight is, is pretty, pretty fundamental in that, uh, you know, architecture as, as seeing um, as the manipulation of light or the play of daylight kind of cuts to the really, really to the core of what a lot of architects believe in architecture. And, you know, the, the literature seems to, to, to really play on this issue. seeing around the sort of 14th century 14th yeah 14th century (laughs) which is lord mayors within like london and paris and places like this um began to sort of bring in little regulations about how people along public thoroughfares needed to um, light their windows which also cast a bit of you know ambient illumination into the thoroughfares outside so it provided a bit of ambience for the people walking through there at night and also a bit of safety i can imagine would be the greatest sort of um, reason for doing that. Um, so, you so lighting was, I guess, even from those early days, it, it was seen to be part of an evolving city. Um, safety, um, uh, just being able to navigate at night would have been, you know, quite something. Mm. You so, sort of start to see people coming out at night and walking mm. around cities and doing things which typically, I suppose, before those times, you, you weren't comfortable in doing and walking mm. down dark streets at night. It was done on an individual level, so it was the responsibility of the owner of the property to hang a lantern in their window, which they were asked to do by their local council or, or Lord Mayor. So it started as an individual sort of ownership, which I think is really interesting when we look at how lighting is done today. When you know electric lighting comes in around the turn of the 20th century, its impact was not immediate. Its impact didn't suddenly transform architecture at all, but it was the beginning of, I think, uh, a transformation of architecture. So perhaps if we talk a little bit, Jackson, mm. about electric lighting, you know, the, the first light that came about from... Um, I mean, incandescent light was sort of... The first sort of commercialized light form. Um, yeah, it was, it, I think it was developed even as early as like the 1790s when it was first sort of being tested and things. And then it sort of through the 1800s it was sort of experimented with and then you know combined with you know 
gas chambers to increase its efficiency but also its, its burn time and then you sort of start to see it develop through the late 18 80s and then you know Edison sort of got a hold of it in that era and then sort of really commercialized it and started to sell thousands of lamps. So the commercialization of it is the critical factor here. Um, it's not the invention of light, it's the commercialization of light mm. that makes it more accessible and more more available to different people. But that's not to say that suddenly everyone was putting incandescent lights into their buildings. Yeah, and this is only 140 years ago. So that's when you look at the scheme of things, it's, it's you know quite a short time period. And they're saying here that, you know, in the late 1880s, they were selling 300,000 lamps a year, wow. which is quite a lot of lamps in that, in that era for people to adopt that sort of technology that quickly. You also um, have to think that with the introduction of lamps, you have, you know, the, the key driver of any light is, is electricity. Mm, so, to the technology. so, you know, a lamp on its own provides no illumination. So you need a, a reliable source of electricity. So we see the world, I suppose, in the Western world and other parts, I presume, as well, moving to a more industrialized state so power being delivered which has certain benefits mm. one of which is electric lighting and you you looking at early images of lights being introduced into say workplaces or factories you still have the same relationship to daylight i would suggest mm. the light is supplementary to daylight um, incandescent lighting is uh, highly inefficient lighting. Virtually 90% of it is given over to heat and 10% of it is given to light. So mm. it requires an enormous amount of power. And I, in those days, presume that the light output was relatively small. Mm. So you don't see a lot of large spaces being lit with incandescence, even in no. the early days. Maybe schools and classrooms are probably the largest sort of spaces. Um, but it's also interesting that the incandescent brought about the movie projector. Mm -hmm. So you see, you start to see this rise of theatres and, and uh, yeah, cinema, which sort of over took over from um, you know live action, you know, cinema and theatre. Um, so it, and that sort of brings a whole new cultural element to cities as well in terms of nighttime activities. So we're roughly speaking in the early twentieth century. We have a range of different things happening globally. I mean, apart from a couple of world wars and a depression and things like that, we see, you know, the world shifting to a more industrialised state. So electric lighting, elevators, um, high-rise buildings, uh, you know, trains, there's, there's a whole range of changes that are happening to society, of which lighting is one of them. So we can overstate the importance of lighting, but equally we can downplay its importance in, in terms of what happens. I think the, um, one of the key drivers or the key changes happens with the introduction of fluorescent lighting. Mm. So perhaps if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, for sure. So sort of the 1930s, late 1930s, early 1940s, um, you start to see the commercialization or the rollout of the fluorescent lighting. And it's interesting when you look at its sort of first beginnings and how it was marketed. Like, we've looked at some earlier, earlier documents from companies, and it's, it's, 
it's sort of marketed as this sort of daylight form, this sort of 360 degree cool light form that, you know, replicates daylight and is, is very so much more efficient than incandescent lighting. So it really opened a lot of doors in terms of what you could do internally efficiently and how you could light spaces ambiently. So can we talk a little bit about the difference between fluorescent lights? So essentially a fluorescent tube is you need uh, electrodes at either end and you have a, uh, an inert uh, gas in there and the charge essentially excites the gas and produces the light. Mm. But all the phosphor around the periphery of the, of internal, the tube. Yeah. Um, but it produces a light that many would describe as cold light. Um, you don't get great colour rendition. And when it first appeared, I think there was a bit of a novelty factor about it. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, looking at some of these early documents, it sort of it did have that industrialised feel to it and how they sort of wanted to market it. Um, practical fluorescent lighting was long dreamed of by scientists. Like, that's kind of an interesting sort of... So the clean white light was seen as a, as a replica of natural light. And because they could produce so many more lights and fill spaces with a more efficient lighting system, there was the opportunity to market fluorescent lighting as a form of daylight. So I think the, the form of light is really critical because mm. essentially you have uh, a tube, uh, which was a standardised length, and a diameter um, that was easily reproduced. So the idea that you could um, essentially flood a large space with fluorescent lighting and illuminate the ceiling or illuminate the floor from the ceiling meant that you, in you know supermarkets, warehouses, uh, shopping centres, these sorts of places could be lit. 24 hours a day, if, if so if so desired. Mm. So it's really the efficiency. So it's sort of, I mean, at the if we just roughly say it's ten, you know, ten, ten times more efficient. Um, that that's a huge energy saving. Mm. But it's also the industrialization because I think the world's moved on, or not moved on. We still have incandescent lighting, of course. But what a, the ability to produce, mass produce this system because it not only relies on the tube, it relies on the fitting. It's standardised, there's a certain length. You can re re replace the, the, the tube relatively easily and you can purchase the luminaire relatively easily. So, you, And it's lifespan. And it's lifespan. Is, 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 so you suddenly have this very uh, efficient, comparably efficient lighting that is marketed as a new world, a new, new idea. Mm. Now... It's interesting, the early images of fluorescent lighting, You, we, I tend to associate fluorescent lighting with supermarkets, uh, offices, a very sort of grid, gridded, you know, spreadsheet. You know, there are sort of those classic reflected ceiling plans, which is, you know, essentially a suspended ceiling with um, uh, fluorescent lights at regular intervals going, marching through the, through the office space or whatever space it is. But in reality, the early use of fluorescent lighting was often used more theatrically. It was used in coffers and 
you know, in, in some of the cinemas that you were talking about as a way of illuminating the architecture. Mm. So a kind of a bit of a modern look in terms of the way in which the architecture becomes illuminated. And this is, I think, a theme that starts to emerge with the introduction of LED lighting, where we have luminous structures being created because we've got the ability to sort of light surfaces more easily than we previously did. So we're not... So do you want to talk a little bit about those those early cinemas? Yeah, well, it fitted well within the architecture because everything was quite linear. Yeah. And... I mean, yeah, those Art Decos are quite curvaceous and things and elements as well. But having a, a linear light source, I think, really dramatically changed in the perception of how you could use this. Mm-hmm. And, you know, coves, coffers and all these sort of things that you start to see on the exterior facades and under awnings on theatres. And also as you walk in, the uplit ceilings and things really came about, yeah, through early neon lighting, but also fluorescent lighting. Um so, yeah, I think that dramatically... I mean, we have lots of linear sources these days, but can you imagine you know, the early 1930s having a linear light source that you know, was brand new? It's, it's, it's a, yes. So it was, almost, it was used... Lighting at night became a draw card. It became part of the experience of being in the city. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it drove the entertainment industry it, it it was essentially the idea of glamour and hollywood and um, these sorts of things i think become really important a sense of what being modern was all about um, and the architecture plays its role in all of that so suddenly i think we move from well not so suddenly but we move from architecture that relies solely on a source of light that is essentially remote from us um, and for a certain period of the day and for a certain period of the day and it is you know highly variable even across a day the sun moves um, and weather conditions seasonal conditions vary that light virtually minute by minute so whilst it is has this incredible intensity about it or incredible um, you know reach i suppose for want of a better word it is an unreliable source in terms of its how it operates on a day-to-day or minute-by-minute basis. But with electric lighting, you suddenly have greater control, and that control means that you are more able to design the effects that are desired. So that's quite a shift from responding to the environment to, in effect, creating the environment that you want and this is a really critical change i would suggest Mm. in the way in which architecture operates it's less responsive and more more prescriptive yeah correct and who prescribes that is another interesting question Mm -hmm. because i think originally the designers were in control of prescribing this application but ultimately they have a client Mm -hmm. sure and this sort of starts to see the change in building form as well, I think. Yep. It, um, I think it, the, the, the notion of, I think you're right, I think the notion of electric lighting plays very much into the style of the day, I think. I think when I think of modern architecture, so we, we'll leap forward slightly and we think about, uh, and we're, we're talking primarily, I suppose, in the US here, 
um, where you have office buildings, um, a very uh, linear or grid system architecture. Uh, fluorescent lighting then starts to become part and parcel of the architecture. So it fits into a ceiling system, it fits into a uh, into the architectural elements of the building and we're seeing more areas of glass to the perimeter. We're seeing uh, shallower footprints. So one of the advantages of fluorescent lighting is that we are no longer constrained by the height to depth ratio, which is really critical in daylight design. We can actually have a fairly broad floor plate and a fairly low floor to ceiling height because mm. essentially we can rely on electric lighting to provide that illumination. Um, so our we're starting to see a disconnection from daylight and more of a connection to electric lighting. away from fluorescent lighting. We also should talk, I think, a little bit about neon lighting because in a sense what, you know, if we think about Las Vegas and we think about, you know, places that are, you know, Hong Kong or um, places that are heavily urbanised uh, uh, and essentially use decorative lighting, fluorescent uh, neon lighting is, has this ability it's very thin. You can use very intense colours, mm. um, and you can bend it. Bend it. You can essentially paint with light. Mm. Um, so the the city by day can be transformed at night. I mean, you start to get these. More, you can have intense signage, which you didn't mm. have before, because everything was backlit. And you could have really quite amazing signage, as you know, places like casinos and. Uh, drive-in theatres and things like that were were really making taking full advantage of the city at night becomes quite a different experience. So it's no longer we're no longer using light to supplement the day, supplement the city, shall we say? We're actually seeing a, a different city by night, and neon lighting really brings that about. And everyone would have seen those very classic images of uh, Las Vegas at night. And you know it, it's an experience unto itself. Mm. Um, so and not only in in sort of Las Vegas and sort of the casino and theatre world, but then you also see it sort of rise within the supermarkets, opening yes. twenty four hours a day or so at least longer hours, because there's refrigeration as well, air conditioning, all these yeah. other things that sort of get integrated at the same time. So it really starts to change how people culturally go about their day-to-day -day lives. So we're not confined to a day-night cycle as much as we were. We can literally shop at 3 a.m. in the morning, if we so desire, um, and go to sleep in the mid-afternoon, technically speaking. Uh, lighting sort of changes the kind of relationship that we have to our built environment and to our, and to our physical environment. So we... It changes architecture, but it also changes our relationship to um, to the world we live in.
probably the next biggest development um, in our very quick survey of the history of lighting has to be LED lighting. And that it, it, it's just simply remarkable that LED lighting has really only been around for about two decades. Um, and the transformation that it has had on building and the lighting industry is profound. I think you'd have to agree. Yeah, definitely. I, well, it's not only it's an improvement in efficiency, but also its size, its controllability. Um, I mean, you can get unlimited range of color. You can tune every single chip to a different spectrum. Um, invisible and non-visible spectrum, so you start to see that's come into play now where you can influence the receptors in the body through UV or... So yeah, it's, it's, it's an unbelievable sort of shift in... So LED, like pretty much all forms of new lighting, has its roots quite a long time earlier. I think, if I've read correctly, in the 1960s where essentially, I think it was the red light um, the red LED was first produced. They had enormous difficulties trying to get the full colour range in those early days. But essentially they produced That's a huge. highly efficient semiconductor that produced a specific type of red, which was then used in a lot of instrumentation mm. back in the early days. Yeah, instrumentation, traffic lights and things like this. I mean, red's the lowest form of, the lowest wavelength, so that was the first one. And then they developed green. But the, the real breakthrough came when they developed the blue. blue so the blue enabled... But you can downrate to every other colour spectrum, essentially. The, so. so just so we're clear on this, so when they produced the blue LED, that enabled them to mix the light to produce the white. So because your blue is the highest wavelength, it allowed them to put a phosphor on top of the blue, which then converted the blue wavelength down oh, to see. every other colour within the right. spectrum. Okay, so um, for those playing at home, um, LED lights are a very small chip that has an incredibly intense light to it. So one of the one of the key issues for any lighting designer is really managing glare, and LED um, really brings that into into sharp focus because you have a highly intense small light that you know placed wrongly will actually create human discomfort. Now, in incandescent lighting and fluorescent light, those things still exist, but they are much easier to manage. I think you'd have to agree. Yeah, definitely. The, 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 well, the, the, the amount of light produced by those sources is sort of produced over a larger surface area. Mm -hmm. So therefore, they don't have the potential to be as glary. Um, and also, you know, LEDs are instant light source. So it doesn't take time to heat up like fluorescent or incandescent. So therefore it can be turned on and off to its peak power very quickly. So what, one of the virtues of uh, LED lighting is it's, it's a highly efficient lighting source. So, and it's long life. So it, it's, it's kind of, again, a bit like the, the, the advertising that surrounded um, fluorescent lighting. It is seen to be, you know, the nirvana of lighting at this, you know, at this stage. It's, it's small. We can put lights in places where we could only imagine in in joinery elements, in refrigerate in refrigerated cupboards or sorry cabinets, um, you know, a whole range of places that we we could now 
illuminate fairly easily, fairly inexpensively through the emergence of LED lighting. And to sort of give you an idea that... I don't know about inexpensively. I think it's <laughs> made things a lot more expensive. Well, the interesting, the, the, the curious thing I think about LED lighting is that it's, it, it, it is sold on the idea of efficiency, but then it's almost it's rampant use within the building industry or within, within cities means that we have a lot more light. And so we have this rather curious set of circumstances where LED lights are now being used. Well, my point earlier that I was wanting to make is that, you know, two, two decades ago, you would go into a lighting shop and, you know, there would be a small section maybe on LED lighting, which, you know, looked awful. My recollection of it, they just looked terrible. And then if you were to go to a, a lighting shop now, um, you would actually be you'd actually find uh, some difficulty in finding a non-LED light. Um, it's essentially replaced most luminaires or most lamp sources mm. in, you know, in within the industry. So Yeah, they've tried to make it into... Well, they make fluorescent tubes that are in LED, you know. They, they look like fluorescent tubes. You know, they do all... Every single Edison bulb, every single base... They've tried to yeah, basically replicate every source within the marketplace that, that existed in an LED source. And I think the other characteristic that we can talk about with LED is that we now have the ability to program lighting a lot more than we did in the early days. So that means that lighting effects become more possible. So mm -hmm. to give you an example, you know, just simply switching a light on and off, as you so desire, becomes a lot more much easier with LED lights. Changing the colour of LED lights becomes much easier. Mm. Um, being a digital light source. Being a digital light source. Controllability to be essentially limitless. So essentially through computer programming, through, um, through, uh, and I'm sure you know the word, it's not on the top of my head, but through programming, um, we suddenly have the ability to tune lighting to do whatever we want. Now, not whatever we want. But Which sort of maps in sort of line with the other forms of technology that are starting to come on board with us. So you have wireless technology, yep. Bluetooth technology, controllability, a digital light source all sort of follows this pathway and allows everything to be individually controlled and individually addressed and told what to do. So, and that, and that links very closely with technology, with computer technology, smartphones and the like which essentially a smartphone is a source of light as well. So we are seeing light effectively in every part of our lives. Mm. And this has led to a rather curious thing, I think, in more recent times, which is the emergence of what's called human-centric lighting. And I could honestly say that I had not heard of human-centric lighting probably two years ago, but now I only hear about human-centric lighting. So... Jack, can you explain to the to the listener, <laughs> listeners, um, human centric lighting? Um, I think it's well started around basically because we, as we spoke about earlier, because buildings have sort of uh, moved away from natural sources of daylight and become these huge broad floor plates with very narrow ceilings, and we don't actually have any daylight in the middle of these floor plates anymore. And people working there all day, have, you know, they've started to realise that there's there's health side effects, there's psychological side effects and all these kind of things that 
happen when you aren't exposed to daylights for extended periods of time, as we have been for thousands of years. Yeah, so the human body has evolved, we more or less, through that day-night cycle. We, 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 we must have, because that was essentially the primary source of light that we used. So the human body, the human psyche, the human physiology is still, despite recent events, connected to that um, day-night cycle. Correct. And which is, there's a lot of research that has only recently, sort of, well, recently in sort of five to ten years, sort of come to the surface about how our bodies respond to light through our receptors in our eyes and how it translates signals into our brain and how it releases hormones into our bodies that keep us, they're sort of the precursors to us falling asleep and inhibiting those and things like that as well. So our understanding of the effect of light on the human body has become more well we've become more aware of it mm. so the notion now with lighting is that in we can as i've understood it we can tune the lighting to respond to the circadian rhythms of our body now the circadian rhythms are uh, essentially body's clock the body's clock and, and and in i think it was around the year 2000 uh an additional receptor was 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 uh, discovered in the human eye. I think they were called ganglion cells, yeah. which the IPNI the which ganglion is, receptor is a receptor that um, essentially moderates the sleep. Yeah, it's a receptor that, that's so that we have through. Well, we knew we had RGB. We had color receptors and black and white receptors which low light receptors in our in our eyes and then they found this other receptor which was scattered very sparsely around the eye but the thing about this receptor which we can talk about how it was discovered actually which is a, a really interesting story um, it, it basically takes a very narrow wavelength of light to stimulate this receptor. It's a red light isn't it? No it's a blue light so blue it's, light. It's, it's in the blue spectrum I think it's like 480 Right. something nanometers it's but it's only a couple of nanometers and so it only picks up that bandwidth which you know in in war and cool light exists in daylight it exists in abundance so once this cell once this receptor becomes saturated then it is either it's like a switch it's on or off if it's if it doesn't reach a saturation level it's off if it's over its saturation level it's on and this is directly sort of they found out they thought it was a direct to um, melatonin secretion but now they know it's the precursor to it. So it's basically like the pathway to it turning on and off uh, melatonin secretion. So what we can say about that receptor is that it responds to light and it regulates our day, our sleep cycle. But I think it also, you know, there's been suggestion that it also affects our mood. So with the greater abundance of light in our lives through technology, through lighting our cities more, we suddenly find ourselves disconnected to being able to sleep. And in fact, I, we know of people in, in our circle of friends who have, you know, have teenage children who have great difficulties going to sleep because they're constantly um, either on their smartphone, computer, um, or active during the day. So they actually find it quite difficult to, to turn off. Yeah. So the health implications of this are quite enormous. So 
So then you start to see the integration of, on iPhones and computers and things, the sort of sunset dinner apps. Yep. So they change the colour temperature of your screen as you, you transition into the twilight, into night time. And um, that's tried to mitigate what's happening, but I still don't think it does in, in full. Well, it, it, it's curious because I think, if anything, uh, the lighting industry seems to be one step ahead of the game in terms of uh, what it puts out into the marketplace. And it isn't clear to me with the, what I've seen that there is solid research that uh, you can tune a light to somehow you know, replicate these conditions that you know, have taken you know, centuries, you know, thousands of years to to work on us as human beings. So, well, the problem with daylight, well, daylight is such a beautiful light source, but it's also outside of the visible spectrum. Like, there's things like mm, you see a rise in um, psoriasis in, in in skin disorders and things like this because people aren't getting exposed enough to UVB, and this is all because they're not in the sunlight anymore. And so, it's it's not just it's not just our body clocks that are suffering. It's it's a whole range of things. But then you know, UV light, you can't expose people to UV light all day because it's not great for you as well. So there's a whole array of things that sunlight has that we aren't yet replicating through LED technology. Mm. So the, 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 and I think this is a critical issue because um, it's sold on the idea that it, it does, or at least that's what I see. Um, and we don't know the full, how the sun really, we know that we, we can see, or I think it's, it's reasonable to assume that daylight and sunlight have positive health impacts on our on our lives. It can also be hugely detrimental, as you uh, as you explained, like skin cancer and overexposure to the sun is, is is obviously a harmful thing. So, but the human body and its relationship to natural light are you know are, you know well established, and we are using essentially day, uh, art of electric light to. Uh, for different purposes than they were originally intended. I think it's probably also a good time now to talk a little bit about uh, something about the environmental, the, sorry, the environmental impact of lighting. Now, uh, something we haven't spoken about is the dark sky movement, and I, you know, I'm fascinated by this. So. If you were, you know, travelling in outer space and you looked at um, a an image of the Earth, you would. If you, you go would, to NASA, you can see that. And if you go to NASA, <laughs> probably I'll Google Earth. But you know, essentially, the, the the Earth has become a small star. I mean, the amount of rate uh, illumination that is in our city streets. I mean, you is, can see it when you're flying over Europe and things yes. like this, you just constantly it's, scattered with an array of, of electric light. light. Mm. So now, this may look rather pleasant on your screensaver but in reality what's happening is that all of that light is actually filling the atmosphere at night and it means that the human eye can't see stars can't see the sort of nuances of the the nighttime sky now this might not seem like the end of the world but in reality it does have i think a curious impact on us as humans one is that it seems to me that being able to see stars, being able to see the nighttime sky is, is really one of the joys of being alive. I think anyone who goes camping or, you know, goes out to remote places and, and enjoys the sort of tapestry of stars at night is, you know, is left gobsmacked with 
I think we're quite quite fortunate in Australia as well because when you travel overseas and you talk to people about this and there's a lot of a lot of cities around the world especially in Europe and throughout Asia that they don't have any understanding of that connection mm. now that connection is is I think important because I think in a sense if we go back to electric lighting as as being a form of control over the environment when you take that control away I think and start to look at the nighttime sky. And we're talking about urban conditions here, I suppose. And I think what happens is that we do become connected to the broader environment. I think our ability to see who we are and our place within the universe, the idea of spirituality, the idea of connection to, to place becomes more apparent at night. I mean, I think it's connected to dreams and I'm sure there are psychologists out there who are far better equipped at this, but essentially I think it taps into the unknown and that I think has an important place in our lives. Now, when we take that away by illuminating our environment for most of our day, we are starting to play with, um, with the psychology and well-being of us as a species. So for any of you who may be aware of it, the dark sky movement is really about trying to recover the ability for people to be able to see the stars at night um, so that that connection can be made available to you know children, Correct. all people. So particularly astronomers are very interested in it. And if, if, you're, if there is a observatory anywhere near a city, there are usually restrictions around lighting in that precinct so that that, that's, that resource can be used to its fullest effect. Mm. And I think just one last thing is we, it, it also has an impact on um, wildlife uh, because obviously we're changing habitat by affecting the way in which um, our cities work. So you know, directly, not just us. And you're seeing that in, in when we do start to ingrain because... You know, technology, lighting on the side of bridges and things like this in, in rural environments or, or non, you know, highly dense environments, then you're seeing side effects of that on, you know, migration of fish down the river and things like this as well, mm -hmm. which we just weren't aware of before we had easy access to these light sources that are extremely intense, highly controllable um, in, in all different colours. But I suppose then that's interesting because that sort of this whole how we're losing connection with the night sky above, which which prehistorically, I think, was our entertainment at night. You'd have mm, a campfire, sure. you look at the stars, and you watch the moon and the moon, and you had this dynamic scene above you. And now, we sort of, as that connection's lost, we're sort of seeing this rise of lighting festivals within our yes. cities, when we're projecting onto everything, and people are coming out tonight to see a, a new dynamic landscape within our cities. That's correct. And it is interesting. I mean, virtually every city now has a light festival. I mean, it's sort of one of the precursors to being a international city is you have to have a, a white night or a vivid. So we're seeing, you know, again, amazing effects. I mean, we're seeing buildings being transformed and buildings becoming the canvas of lighting effects. So again, that is a difference to what architecture was previously. So, Which is a digital projector too, I think around mm. 1990. So that sort of brought Which, about this possibility and able to do this. And on a broad scale. Correct. And um, being able to map it and do it perfectly. So if, uh, for any of you who have been to White Night or similar lighting events, you, you, can, you will see just how many people are drawn to those events. 
um, and fantastic, but it, it, it does raise questions, I think, about what we value and I guess the long-term implications of these, these sorts of technology. So, <laughs> in summary, <laughs> our podcast, our little humble podcast with Jackson and me, um, is going to try and tease out bit by bit. Mm. We've got a few element, uh, topics up our sleeve. <laughs> it's really quite it a few. Is interesting going into all these different reps. Today I was writing some down. Um, I don't know what sort of mood that I was in, but one of them was the progression of international codes and standards, which I think could just be a topic in itself, is like assessing all the codes around the world. You better do the research on that one. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't sound highly... Um, Highly um, interesting, but it, yeah, I think it will be. Lighting technologies, you know, architectural form, fluorescent lighting, which we already talked about. You can go into all these in so much depth and detail. And there's so many interesting stories of how we got to where we are today. And also thinking about the future, like mm. as we were talking about now, losing that connection with the night sky, that's a really powerful thing. Like when you see the night sky for yourself in the country, mm. It's different to seeing it on your computer screen. Or monitor. It's like anything in, in the flesh. Mm. It really is. It's a, it, it dramatically changes you and you get this possibility of the unknown. Having that unknown around you mm. is, is, is a life-changing experience. Well, it's so, effectively, effectively science, you know, the, the birth of science could be explained through the uh, observing, the, you know, observing the observation of the night sky because questions were asked. I mean, what are those little dots of light? I mean, how, who, what are they? You know, and how do you start to think about your place in the world without though that sort of line of inquiry? If everything is kind of de predetermined or, shall we say, uh, certain, it becomes more difficult to question Correct. Things. It's now, nice being feeling un insignificant sometimes. Absolutely. And it's part of the human psyche and it's part of what we need. So our little podcast, to go back to where we're, is hopefully going to try and tease out each of these topics over the course of a season and maybe two if we can if we can get our research act together. Yeah, yeah definitely. <laughs> but centred around light, cities and architecture, the relationship between how they've developed how they're going to develop in the future. And, yeah, just to try and tease out some of these subjects. So if you have any suggestions or wish to make any comments, we are all ears. We're very happy to hear feedback. Um, we want to make it good. And if you have suggestions, we'll certainly take them on board. So thanks for listening. Cheers.